Hello and welcome to The Corporate Casket, a semi-weekly series where bad businesses go to die. We will discuss any and everything from bad charities, terrible CEOs, and people that have a lot to hide. I'm the Illuminati, and today we are continuing our four-part series look at Disney. And today's episode is obviously part two. So we're going to be starting from post-World War II era and to how Disney grew into the titan of industry that they are today. So let's get into it. Now, as I mentioned in our previous episode on Disney, no matter what beliefs you think Walt Disney had as an individual, surely he treated his employees well, right? After all they did for him. Well, one of the earliest issues Disney faced in his company was an animator strike. This strike alone is still on complications of the biggest controversies Disney's ever had. Unfortunately, this proved that Walt wasn't always the lovable familial employer some thought he was. In 1941, the animators working for his studio viewed him in a much different light. Angry they hadn't received profit sharing after working on Snow White and feeling alienated by Disney lawyer Gunther Lessing, the animators were on the brink of taking action. Animator Art Babbitt joined the Animation Guild and the staff asked for guild recognition. Shortly after, the studio fired Babbitt and the animators went on strike. The strike dragged on for nine weeks before Disney gave in to pressure from his bank, federal mediators, and even his brother and business partner, Roy. Bad blood from this Disney controversy remained, and many top animators left the studio in subsequent years. In a way, this reminds me of Ub Iwerks. Walt may have been parental to some, but he didn't always give the animators the credit they truly deserved. Though we are focusing on the growth and formation of Disney World today, I want to touch upon this strike as Walt himself was involved. Plus, as some of you may recall from part one, sources claim that he believed communists organized it as this was a post-war kind of scarce era. And this was likely the reason he joined the anti-communist organization called the Motion Picture Alliance. So what exactly happened in this strike? I dug as deep as I could to try and find both perspectives and see where things went wrong. I went over to the Animation Guild's website to see their perspective and history on the matter. They state that the earliest attempts to organize animation studios came from iWorks in 1931 and Van Buren in 1935, but both of these were unsuccessful. In 1935, Inker and scene planner Sadie Bowden was fired from Van Buren for her union activities and she became the first person to picket an animation studio. Back then, the Wagner Act, which made it illegal to fire someone for wanting a union, wasn't in force. They also write, in 1936, the Commercial Artists and Designers Union set out to organize the Max Fleischer Studios, best known for Popeye and Betty Boop. In 1937, after Fleischer refused to reorganize their union and fired 15 artists for complaining, the Fleischer artists hit the bricks for the first cartoonist strike. After five months of noisy boycotts and demonstrations, Paramount forced Fleischer to sign with CADU. This was the first union contract in animation. Fleischer retaliated by moving his operation to Florida, a state with a strong anti-union bias. To lure artists to Florida, Fleischer had to pay the highest salaries in the business. The costs incurred fighting the union broke the company and Paramount took over and moved it back to New York where it became Famous Studios. 
Yet it was the Disney strike of 1941 that the Animation Guild called their biggest challenge. The website claims that they were promised profits from Snow White and it was alienation over blunt maneuvers by Disney lawyer Gunther Lessing that made the workers sympathetic to unite against Disney. Disney fired Babbitt for resigning as president of the Disney Company Union to join the guild instead. According to the Animation Guild, the strike began on May 29th, 1941 and lasted five weeks, not nine. They also state that FDR himself had to send a federal mediator who found in the guild's favor on every issue. Profit sharing, what these animators were fighting for is exactly as it sounds. Human interest says it's a specific type of 401k plan and states, in a profit sharing plan, an employee receives a percentage of the company's profits, either in cash or company stock, based on the company's quarterly or annual earnings, and the amount is determined by the employer. Quarterly profit sharing plans can be slightly more cumbersome, but they incentivize high performers in risky businesses. The goal is to reward employees for their contribution to the business's success and align their financial well being with that of the company. Both pensions and profit sharing plans achieve this goal. Naturally, right after the massive success of Snow White, this would be extremely beneficial to employees. At that time, Disney had made it a practice to share 20% of the profits with employees as bonuses. However, as we mentioned in part one, despite the success of Snow White, Disney wasn't actually doing great in later years, especially around 1941. According to Jacobin Mag, World War II dramatically changed the situation. In 1937, Disney started constructing a studio in Burbank, California, financed on credit with the assumption of continuous success. But the war destroyed the European market for his films. Pinocchio and Fantasia were box office failures in 1940. And Disney was soon $4.5 million in debt. He sought to recoup these losses through ramping up pressure on his workers. The intimate familial environment was quickly gone from the studio in Burbank. Strict hierarchies were established with most benefits only going to the highest paid and most established artists. Most new artists did routine dull tasks and received $20 per week, while the senior artists got to do more creative work and would make up to $250 per week. Workers were also forced to sign documents claiming they only worked 40 hours a week when in fact they worked much more. And cartoonists wanted professional screen credits for their art as they claimed Disney often took credit for their work. In a 1991 interview, animator Willis Pyle said of the time, I felt that the union was necessary because there was no rhyme or reason as to the way the guys were paid. You might be sitting next to a guy doing the same thing as you and you might be getting paid $20 a week more or less than him. At the time, Disney himself apparently called all his workers into an auditorium and explained that because of his debts, he couldn't share these profits with the workers. He also said they needed to work harder and apparently reminded them they still had it good because he offered training, vacations, and sick time. The thing is, Disney's debts that they incurred by taking on too much wasn't really these workers' problems, and it might sound harsh, but they shouldn't have to suffer when he promised him that. At every lecture Disney gave these workers, he was obstinate, reminding them that they had it good, and at one point stated, put your own house in order. You can't accomplish a damn thing by sitting around and waiting to be told everything. If you're not progressing as you should, instead of grumbling and growling, do something about it. His condescending attitude upset many, including Babbitt at this time. Babbitt had created Goofy and the evil stepmother in Snow White and Geppetto in Pinocchio. He was one of the senior artists, but even he saw Walt as a tyrant at this point. 
Though Walt saw Babbitt joining the guild as a betrayal, I'd say Walt betrayed his workers by addressing them this way, like they were spoiled children, when in fact, these animators were asking for pay that they had been promised and recognition that Walt was awful at giving. Also, as a brief aside, these picket signs were hilarious and incredible. One photo shows Babbitt with a sign that reads, I've got a bone to pick with Walt and drawing an angry Pluto with a bone in his mouth. As the strike wore on, Disney saw the whole thing as a personal attack. According to Jacobin Mag, despite there being very few leftists in the SCG, Disney published a letter in Variety claiming that communist agitation, leadership, and activities have brought about this strike. As mentioned previously, it seems more than likely that this is what spurred Walt to join the MPA, not anti-Semitism, but anti-communism. The strike ended well for the animators. A 40-hour work week was established, even though we still hear about crunch times and some young animators saw their salaries double overnight. Yet Walt seemed to see it as a personal slight as the familial bond was broken during this time. The thing is, I genuinely believe that this strike could have been avoided if Walt treated his animators with respect. It seemed to be the meetings where he talked down to them that truly spurred on the rage between Walt and his animator team. If Walt had said that they were going through a difficult financial period, been transparent about that, apologized, and drafted up some agreement to pay them as soon as he possibly could, then this probably wouldn't have happened. This attitude of a parent scolding a misbehaving child is what bothers me, and it's what seemed to bother a lot of these animators too. Even though I understand they may have been low on funds at the time, Disney has a nasty little habit of forgetting how important these talented animators are in their financial windfalls. The reason why I say this is a habit is because Disney ended up doing the same thing 60 years later after the success of Frozen. Disney supposedly paid out 10 extra weeks of bonus pay to the animators that worked on Frozen, except for those that were laid off. Steve Hewlett, business representative of IATSE Animation Guild said that some of my people worked on the whole picture to the very end and then they were laid off and they're not getting the bonus. It doesn't seem right. Hewlett spoke recently with a Disney labor relations executive to share his members' complaints, but was told that the bonus was because of Frozen, but not about Frozen. That should be cold comfort to the laid off workers. Disney's reasoning here makes no sense whatsoever. They made all this money because of Frozen, but their rationale is it's not about Frozen. They're just rewarding their current animators. The animators that made this film a success should be paid extra too. It sounds as if Disney simply laid these people off because, oh, the hard part's over and now we won't have to pay out the bonus pay. And to make it clear, they are not required to pay out these bonuses and they're not breaking any laws, but it does leave a bad taste in my mouth and it doesn't look good. Now that we've gotten through the 40s, let's start getting into the creation of Disney World itself. Well, I guess you've seen just about everybody. I've been waiting my whole life to make you. There's never been a better time to make the dream come true. Although Disney theme parks didn't open for decades later, Walt nurtured the idea of Disney for ages. According to PBS, Throughout the late 1940s and early 1950s, he visited other amusement parks and carnivals with an eye towards creating his own. He began to envision a cleaner themed-based park where families could become part of the magical world that his films depicted on the big screen. In 1952, he assembled a small group of artists and designers from his Walt Disney Studio staff and created a new company called WED, his own initials, to help make his amusement park dream a reality. Walt and Roy obtained funding from ABC in exchange for creating and hosting an hour-long weekly television show. 
The result was Disneyland TV, like a precursor to the Disney Channel that I'm sure many of you grew up on. The Disney Channel will be later in the episode though. We're not getting there today. I'm sorry, it's just another part of the series. But anyway, on July 17th, 1955, Disneyland had an invitation-only opening gala broadcasted live on ABC. California. This afternoon, Disneyland, the world's most fabulous kingdom, will be unveiled before an invitational world premiere. And you are Almost half of the American population at that time watched the festivities on television, and when the park opened to the public the next day, people were lining up as early as 2 a.m. I'm standing here on the railroad tracks with helicopters roaring overhead and cars parked. The New York Times reported that 15,000 were in line before 10 a.m. and within just the first 10 weeks, they attracted 1 million visitors. After the massive success of Disneyland, Walt began buying up huge plots of land in Florida for a project he called Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, AKA Epcot. However, in December, 1966, before he could see the opening of Disney World, Walt Disney died of lung cancer. Roy Disney became the chairman, CEO, and president of the company, overseeing the construction and completion of Walt Disney World. Roy passed away just three months after the new park was opened in 1971. And as an aside, yes, to any of you that might be wondering, Disney World was built with an underground tunnel system known as Utilidors so that cast members can get around easier. This is also where costuming, dressing rooms, break rooms, and the Mouseketeria or cafeteria is located. Now, before I get into the why this happiest place on earth may or may not have actually earned this title, let's get into some of the strict rules employees have at the park. Reader's Digest states, Disney employees aren't technically employees, they're cast members. And no, not just the ones who play actual Disney characters, Every employee in the park, whether they operate rides, serve food, or actually put on a show is a cast member. The idea that the entire Disney park itself is a stage. And what's the most important thing a cast member has to do? Stay in character, of course. If you're playing a Disney character, that character's world becomes your world. You're not allowed to make references to any pop culture that exists outside of the Disney universe. From the moment you don the costume to the moment you take it off, you can't talk about anything that Snow White, Peter Pan, or whoever you're playing wouldn't know about. Whether that's the latest iPhone or the Harry Potter park just across Orlando. There's height requirements. You have to look the part. There's a certain dress code, jewelry codes. Cast members must be on first name basis only. They're only allowed to point with two fingers, not one, and garbage must be picked up gracefully with a swoosh and scoop motion. And yes, there is a rule about how to pick up trash. Now, as ridiculous as some of this might seem, I understand why autographs should be accurate and dress codes for beloved characters are going to be strict. Even so, it can get harmful as we'll get into in just a bit. The entire park is seen as a stage, so they're all playing a part. If you do manage to become a Disney princess, you've got to be very careful because groping is an entire problem in of itself. One Disney princess was left shaking and crying after being sexually assaulted during a photo. And one woman in a Mickey Mouse costume was hospitalized after her neck was broken when a grandmother repeatedly pet her head, moving the headpiece. These are only two examples as it's happened on numerous occasions. Yet this and the training and the restrictions are all seen as part of the job. Even so, Disney seemed to realize just how restrictive some of these dress codes can be, especially for cast members that aren't even in costumes, but for just running the rides, taking tickets and things of that nature. It took until this year, and I'm talking 2021, 
for Disney to announce that they would finally be more inclusive in regard to allow more hairstyles, jewelry, nail styles, and appropriate visible tattoos. They also introduced LGBTQ Mickey ears, Mickey ears with a rainbow on them. Perhaps Disney truly wants to be more diverse and include a wider variety of people, or maybe they're simply doing this for profit as more and more people want to support inclusive companies. But that's a decision for the end of this series, once we've seen the whole of Disney. However, my biggest issues with Disney World are their lack of regard for safety, for the health and well-being of their cast members, the dangerous people they hire, and the abuse of the animals in their care. Now, before we get into some of these more serious topics, this is where I'm going to take a quick break to thank today's sponsors. And then when we return, we're going to get into some really tough topics. So as an upcoming content warning, the next several sections will discuss the mistreatment of these employees. And as the animal abuse section can get pretty graphic, I'll leave that at the end to let you know when we get there. So let's take a quick break and then return to talk about worker mistreatment. Fall is extra busy and that can make eating a lot more complicated, but HelloFresh helps me simplify getting food into my body. HelloFresh lets me skip meal planning and the grocery store trip and get straight to making myself dinner, all in under 30 minutes in most cases. HelloFresh sends fresh pre-measured ingredients along with incredibly delicious recipes straight to your door and simplifies the entire process from start to finish. Now, I know I have talked about their firecracker meatballs and how I am in love with them, but sometimes I just want something simpler and they even have like one pan and one skillet meals that are so easy to do. It's almost sickening that I couldn't figure it out earlier. And the fall harvest is officially on and HelloFresh is serving seasonal recipes like pumpkin cinnamon rolls and Friendsgiving friendly sides, as well as fresh high quality ingredients that travel from the farm to you in less than a week. So if you're ready to get started with HelloFresh, make sure to go to hellofresh.com casket14 and use code casket14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. Again, that's up to 14 free meals and free shipping at hellofresh.com casket14 and use code casket14. This episode is also sponsored by Stitch Fix. Now I'm a fan of clothing, but I'm not a fan of looking for them. Whether it is in person or online, it's time consuming, it's anxiety driven, and I'm never sure how things are going to fit, how they're gonna look, how the color's gonna be, how this, how that, and the other thing. But that's why I've been so happy getting my style updates from Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix sends you clothing that expert stylists hand select for your size, style, and budget. They choose every piece for your fit and your life. And it's an easy solution to finding what makes you look and feel your best. Stitch Fix lets you try on pieces at home before you buy, keep your favorites, and then send back the rest. They've got free shipping, easy returns, and exchanges, and they include a prepaid return envelope too. You just pay a $20 styling fee for each box, and that gets credited toward pieces that you keep. Now, you guys know I am an absolute sweater maniac, even in the summer, although these past couple weeks, Colorado has really been trying me getting some weather here in the upper 80s and 90s. They have been trying me, but I prevailed and I wore sweaters. And as a matter of fact, one of my favorite sweaters, which this sounds absolutely insane. I know talking about sweaters, well, it's still technically like summer, early fall, but they sent me this really nice olive sweater that has like this weird, like reverse V cut kind of on the side. I thought I wouldn't like it. I thought it was really sketch. Like I would not have picked it up, but it's now one of my favorites to wear. So if you wanna get started today and try Stitch Fix, make sure to go to stitchfix.com casket and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash casket for 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. 
stitchfix.com casket. We'll very briefly mention how these workers are paid because unfortunately their poor excuse for a paycheck is the most inoffensive thing about how cast members are treated at Disney. I'm not saying that this is how every cast member is treated, but this is a common enough occurrence that multiple sources have spoken out about it. If you worked at Disney and loved it, that's great. But for many, that's not the experience and I don't see it addressed often enough. Fortune wrote back in 2017 that Disney actually violated labor laws by charging employees for their costumes and had to pay over $3.8 million in back wages. By deducting money for costumes from some employees' paychecks, these employees made below minimum wage, which in Florida at the time was only $7.25. You would think that Disney, a titan of industry with all their rules, might just pay a little more than that. If they're this intent on keeping the magic alive, that's fine, but at least they could recognize that this is a damn hard job to do and pay their employees well for it. One New York Times article entitled, By Day, A Sunny Smile for Disney Visitors, By Night, An Uneasy Sleep in a Car, read, On Disneyland's Main Street Avenue, Emily Bertola spends hours working on her feet, embroidering names onto mouse ears at the Mad Hatter shop, where she has been an employee for the last two years. She usually offers visitors the sunny smile she was trained to give. None of her customers know that for months, she slept in the back of her truck, showering at the park before her shift. Her struggle is hardly unique to Disneyland. Orange County is known for its affluence and for its tourist industry, but the thousands of workers who keep its resorts, restaurants, and hotels running are sometimes struggling to stay afloat. As the state grapples with soaring housing costs, workers in California earning just above minimum wage find it difficult to pay for basic costs. Many employees at Disneyland have moved farther inland, driving hours each day to work. Others like Miss Bertola have opted to move from couch to couch or sleep in their cars for months at a time. Disneyland Resort, which includes the theme park, California Adventure and nearby hotels, employs roughly 30,000 people. It is the largest employer in Orange County and one of the biggest employers in the state. This is why the minimum wage needs to be a living wage as it was intended to be. Out of a 17,000 member union strike, over 85% of Disney workers were paid less than $15. Keep this in mind that this is in California where minimum wage was $10.50 at the time and the cost of living is supremely expensive. According to a survey of thousands of low-wage employees at the park, nearly three quarters of workers who responded said they do not earn enough money to pay for their basic monthly expenses. And one in 10 said they'd been homeless in the past two years. The survey and analysis were conducted by Occidental College and the Economic Roundtable, a group that has long supported raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour and was paid for by a coalition of labor unions. The survey was sent to about 17,000 workers in the park who are represented by labor unions and was completed by about 30% of them, including both full-time and part-time employees. The responses account for about 17% of the park's overall workforce. If this many workers have gone homeless while working for Disney, then something's terribly wrong with Disney. It's not as if they're hurting for money. Disney is, as we've said, one of the largest corporations in the world. They can by all means afford to pay these employees more as their executives are paid millions of dollars, if not tens of millions. Yet as to Disney's response, they said that the survey was by politically motivated unions. And frankly, it reminds me of Walt's dismissive attitude back in 1941. 
Disney is being told by their own workers that they are struggling, homeless, and they aren't making enough, and they're simply not listening. Instead, a spokeswoman for Disney said that they have created more than 4,000 jobs over the past five years, giving Disney a pat on the back for that. Yes, they create a ton of jobs, but if these jobs are poor quality and employees can barely live off of them, then it's hardly something to be proud of. Another story from the New York Times reads, after being in salons for several years, Rebecca Peterson began working at Disneyland because she would be eligible to join the Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild. She earns $11.68 an hour, an amount she said that nobody can live on here. Some nights, the 27-year-old heads to her mother's home in Temecula, a drive that routinely takes two hours. More often, she says, she drives along the Pacific Coast Highway and pulls over into a secluded spot near Malibu, attaching cloth to her windows before sleeping. When she wakes up, she goes to a nearby Starbucks to brush her teeth. She showers and puts on her makeup once she arrives at work, where she puts on the wigs for princesses in the park. There's plenty more discussion to be had around the abysmal wages as Abigail Disney herself, Walt's granddaughter, has spoken out against these poor conditions. Funny how she says the park needs to change this and do right by their employees while Disney spokespeople have denied there's even a problem. But we've got to move on from this specific topic of wages and into the severe forms of abuse here. Poor pay is one thing and it's all too common, unfortunately, but the way that Disney doesn't even care about their worker safety and well-being is downright disturbing. Though I suppose this shouldn't be all that surprising considering that their sponsors or affiliates are companies like Nestle, Hershey, and Mars, and they're notorious for using child slavery to make their chocolate. Other ways that Disney mistreats their workers is disgustingly enough making them share underwear. And yes, unfortunately, you did hear that correct. Disney put their workers' health at risk because tights, jock straps, and things of that nature were all shared for the more mascot-esque costumes like Mickey and Minnie Mouse, Pluto, Goofy, etc. According to the BBC, many of the characters have to wear Disney-issued jock straps, tights, or cycling shorts underneath their costumes because normal underwear bunches up and can be seen. Disney officials had told the workers that hot water was used to wash the clothes. But this was apparently not the case, said Mr. Stevenson, a shop steward with the Teamsters Union, which represents the workers. Some workers complained about receiving undergarments that were stained or smelly, and Mr. Stevenson says that there had been three cases of costumed workers at the Magic Kingdom getting pubic lice or scabies during the past two years. Now, after nearly two months of negotiations, workers will be given individual garments, which they can take home each night to wash. It's not as if this was when the park first opened and they didn't like realize or think that through. And it's not as if Disney changed this policy as soon as they recognized their mistake. It took two months of fighting back in 2001 for these workers to get their own underwear. And just having to say that out loud, it's obvious how unhygienic that is. With how little these employees make, it feels like this is the least Disney could do, but they still couldn't even do that. Of course, Disney has treated their employees laughably awful for no apparent reason, as there's also been racism and discrimination at the parks. Back in 2012, a Muslim woman named Iman Baudwal filed a lawsuit against Disney for discrimination. She claims that her coworkers could call her a terrorist, came and Kunta Kinte, in reference to a slave from the book Roots. Disneyland calls itself the happiest place on earth, but I faced harassment as soon as I started working there, she said in a statement. It only got worse when I decided to wear a hijab. 
my journey towards wearing it could not have been more American. It began at my naturalization ceremony. I realized that I had the freedom to be who I want and freely practice my religion. Neither Disney nor anyone else can take that from me. When Budlau told a manager about the harassment, she said they acknowledged it was a problem, but took no action and said it would take time for a change. She filed her first written complaint three months after she started working at the cafe and continued to alert different supervisors to the harassment. Eventually, one told her to stop complaining. Disney did offer a hijab substitute for her, but she described it as offensive as it was very clearly just a hat on top of a bonnet. While this may have worked for one employee in the past, Budlow said she shouldn't have to accept a hat over her personal headscarf, and she explained. The hat makes a joke of me and my religion and draws even more attention to me, she said. It's unacceptable. They don't want me to look like a Muslim, she continued. They just don't want the head covering to look like a hijab. And this by no means is their only account of racism. One former employee said he believed it was his Moroccan nationality that led to his discrimination in the workplace. Abdurrahman Sati, who worked at the ESPN Sports Complex at the Disney Resort, was fired in 2014. This was after he was prevented from praying during his Ramadan fast, being passed up for promotions, and after he had found a noose made from green duct tape on his office chair in 2012. Though the police were informed, no arrests were made. He had been an employee with Disney since 1989. About six years ago in 2015, a Sikh worker also faced discrimination at Disney and AP News writes, a Sikh American delivery man who claimed his roots at Walt Disney World were restricted so visitors wouldn't see his turban and unshaved beard has won the right to have the same routes as other delivery workers. Walt Disney World Resort issued a letter last month saying that Gurdit Singh would be granted a religious accommodation from Disney's strict grooming guidelines known as the Disney look. The Disney look requires workers to have neatly cut hair, no unnatural hair colors, and no visible tattoos. The company only started allowing workers to grow beards in 2012, but the beards have to be neatly trimmed. The ACLU and the Sikh coalition had threatened legal action. This has changed recently, as we mentioned when talking about their dress codes. At the same time though, even a beard was enough to offend Disney. If it's really the happiest place on earth, then shouldn't it include everyone? Any slightest deviation from this clean cut, shaved cookie cutter mold isn't the Disney look. And honestly, not everyone fits the Disney look, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to be a part of the Disney magic. If Disney is for everyone, then it needs to include everyone. It's not as if the employees are wearing offensive t-shirts or not safe for work tattoos on their faces, but Disney sure as hell is treating them like it is. And yet this is not the only case of discrimination that's made headlines. Former Walt Disney World temp worker, Monica Shaw said that she was treated differently from her Caucasian counterparts back in 2015 as well. Monica is African-American and she says that her supervisors would criticize her updo hairstyle, forbid her from wearing her preferred heels and give her a smaller workstation than other employees. She also claimed that her white colleagues would quote, ask her if she ate chitterlings, end quote. A chitterling, by the way, I had to find out what that was, is the small intestine of a pig, which was often given to enslaved African-Americans as their high and unhealthy fats and were used to supplement meager food allotments. That's not to say that you can't eat it and enjoy it today, but let's be real, I don't think her white coworkers were just asking for recipes. Context made it clear what this was about. As for her hairdo, it seemed to be just 
a lovely puffed up updo, just kind of like an afro in the front and then just kind of smoothed down a little bit. It, it looks great. And these spiked pumps absolutely fell in the guidelines and they were relatively plain with nothing offensive about them. If you want to take a look at all the photos for yourself, you can check out my sources. They'll be linked there. But I just absolutely don't see anything wrong with what she was wearing and how she was dressing herself. Yet Disney called her hair extreme and said that the hair should be combed and arranged in a classic, easy to maintain style. And who is Disney to define easy to maintain? It literally doesn't even make sense. The Disney look is racist and discriminatory, plain and simple. Sure, it's inclusive now, but it really took until legitimately this year, 2021 to get there. Sure, you can argue they made progress, but it feels hollow when they hurt so many people along the way. Now that we've gotten to move on from this topic, as important as it is, we need to continue to talk about worker safety. Disney cares a lot about creating a fantasy realm for their customers, and we've seen that, but they seem to prioritize that over their worker's safety. One source claims that if you are a cast member in dire need of CPR, you have to wait until you can be dragged out of view of children until you can receive it. The only reason this doesn't absolutely infuriate me is because the article only has anecdotal evidence to prove this, and it's a lot of online hearsay. Someone posting anonymously said that they were told this, so I don't consider it a reliable source. But if true, it is gross. However, what we do know, as multiple reliable sources have confirmed, is that safety comes second, or third, or fourth, or just not first. On August 19th, 2009, the Sun Sentinel wrote, Walt Disney World stunt performer Anislav Varbanov died as a result of an accident that broke his neck, a medical examiner ruled Tuesday. Varbanov, 30, died Monday night after tumbling roll at Hollywood Studios. He was injured during a rehearsal for the Indiana Jones epic stunt spectacular. The Orange Osceola County Medical Examiner's Office ruled Tuesday afternoon that Farbanov suffered a spine fracture in his neck. He is the third Disney employee in seven weeks to die after being injured while working. A tumbling roll is a common acrobatic maneuver in the Indiana Jones show, Disney spokeswoman Zoraya Suarez said. During rehearsal, the performer jumps in the air, dives over another performer, then tucks and rolls into the mat, she said. The performance has been successful thousands of times. Disney workers dialed 911 at 7.34 p.m. Farbanoff was taken to Florida Hospital Celebration Health, where he was pronounced dead at 8.53 p.m. On July 5th, monorail driver Austin Woonenberg, 21, died when another train backed into his own. The Orange Osceola Medical Examiner's Office said there were no drugs in his system and he died of multiple traumatic injuries. This monorail incident is also known for being one of the largest controversies and tragedies at Disney. The Orlando Sentinel reported on the incident in 2011, once the National Transportation Safety Board concluded their investigation, and they stated, Walt Disney World Resort's lack of standard operating procedures leading to an unsafe practice when reversing trains contributed to the tragedy. The NTSB is the second federal agency to cite Disney for its role in the accident. The U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration cited Disney with four safety violations in December 2009. Following its probe into the accident and ultimately fined the resort $35,200. NTSB said the accident caused $24 million worth of property damage. And this could have been so easily prevented. The train that crashed into Austin was supposed to be transferred off the resort's Epcot loop onto a switch beam, but the track switch was never activated. 
Disney yet again manages to infuriate me when Greg Hale, the chief safety officer, said that they review safety procedures every day in their resort to find ways to improve. I'm trying to cut down on my swearing, but what an absolute load of bullshit. This is the second out of three deaths to occur in less than two months at this time, and Greg is going around saying they care about safety? As for the third death, the Sentinel Sun wrote, on August 10th, Mark Priest, 47, died from complications he experienced after a bad onstage fall at the Magic Kingdom. Priest was performing a mock sword fight during Captain Jack's pirate tutorial, an interactive show in which actors lead guests through a series of pirate skills tests when he stumbled on a wet spot and banged into a wall, his best friend said. He appeared to be improving, but died four days later. And here's the thing. Disney knew that all of these acrobatic tricks and everything were dangerous. They were fined $1,000 by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration after three performers were injured in 1990. One fell 30 feet onto concrete when a restraining cable didn't work properly. Another fell about 25 feet landing on crates after a ladder he was on collapsed. And the third was squeezed by a trap door that malfunctioned. The federal agency told Disney back then they didn't provide enough padding to protect performers, but hey, Disney didn't care. Soon afterwards, a fourth cast member dropped 20 feet onto concrete during rehearsal. And this was back in 1990. They had almost two decades to make things safer before these three deaths occurred in 2009. And yet they did not make changes. Yet that 1000 to Disney is basically just the cost of performing. So that's what's upsetting about these businesses that become larger than life. The fines, the lost lives, the settlements, the payouts to families, whatever may come of this, it's nothing more than a drop in the bucket to them they can keep going with this abuse because ultimately they can just keep paying it off. But sure, Greg Hale, Disney really cares about safety procedures. Tragically, it isn't only the humans that are mistreated at Disney, but the animals too. For the rest of this episode, I'm going to discuss Disney's history of animal abuse. And yes, this is gonna get a little intense. So if you wanna click away now, this would, this would be your heads up. See, Back in the 1970s to the 1990s, Disney operated this small island inside a lake at Disney World. It's still there, but it's just not in use. But back when it was in use, this place was essentially a bird habitat. There were beautiful, colorful imported birds like flamingos, bald eagles, cockatoos, and it held one of the largest walkthrough aviaries in the world with plant life imported from East India, China, and South America. At one point, Disney even attempted to save the Florida dusky sparrow from going extinct there, but the sparrows escaped their habitats and Disney tried to hide this from the Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission. And they didn't even learn about the last of the sparrows either dying or fleeing in a storm until two months after it had actually happened. Aside from this though, Discovery Island was essentially a bird heaven. Unfortunately, other birds like vultures, hawks, and egrets didn't know that this heaven wasn't made for them. Disney did not want these birds around antagonizing their guests or the other colorful imported birds. So what did they do? Well, the unthinkable. Workers beat the vultures to death with a stick, destroyed the nests and eggs of ibises and egrets, and fired a rifle at hawks. 16 state and federal charges were filed against Disney and five employees in September 1989, most dealing with the deaths of the vultures. Disney killed many of them by cramming the poor birds into a tiny overheated shed for days with limited food and water. Disney claimed that they misunderstood a permit they had to trap and relocate vultures that were pecking at park animals. 
Yes, workers were allowed to move these vultures and take measures to get them to leave. But if Disney misunderstood that as a go ahead to kill these birds, then it shows how much they actually cared about those animals to begin with. Discovery Island paid almost $100,000 to make this go away. And again, just the cost of doing business for them. And it created the Animal Kingdom attraction in 1998, where many of the birds were relocated. Animal Kingdom itself is more than just a zoo and animals are given far more space than you would see in a traditional zoo. It's 580 acres, whereas for comparison's sake, the world famous San Diego Zoo is only 100. Whether or not you're a fan of zoos, it's probably one of the biggest out there, though space alone doesn't make a good animal habitat. According to my sources, nine herd animals have died due to injuries from fights, two cranes were run over by safari vehicles in two separate incidents, two otters died after ingesting loquat seeds from trees, and two cheetah cubs died after ethylene glycol poisoning. Animal Kingdom absolutely has their issues, and I personally feel that once you add money into the mix, that's where things get dangerous. Nonprofit organizations and animal sanctuaries that are truly trying to rescue and save and rehabilitate animals seem less likely to do harm, whereas organizations that put them on display for profit, well, that's where the harm seems more prevalent. Personally, I think Disney has shown us this on Discovery Island. Sure, they care about animals, but only the ones that give them money. The vultures, hawks, they beat those animals to death with sticks and then pay for the charges to go away. Unfortunately, it's on that disturbing note where I'm going to end part two into taking a look at the Disney empire. Thank you so much for joining me on this Disney series again. There will be a new episode out in just a week. If you learned something new from this episode, I wouldn't say you enjoyed it, but if you learned something new, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all future episodes and all the other content that I post as well. But with that being said, that is where today's episode is ending and I will see you in the next one. Thanks for hanging out.